Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. For today's podcast, we have uh, yet another panel discussion that I was a part of that we are now turning into a podcast. Uh, this one was a discussion held just last week by the Internet Archive for their D-Web meetup. Uh, D-Web standing for distributed web or decentralized web, depending on who you talk to. Often those two are used interchangeably. Uh, it's just whichever makes the most sense for you. Uh, the conversation was moderated by Mai Sutton, uh, and the panelists were Amandine LaPape, Corey Doctorow, who was just on our own podcast very recently, uh, Jay Graber, and myself, uh, all four of which are very, uh, well, I shouldn't say that about myself, but the three <laughs> others are very interesting folks with different perspectives uh, regarding the distributed decentralized web. And uh, I will note that this podcast will be a bit long uh, as it was an hour long discussion held over Zoom and then another half an hour of audience questions. Uh, and we didn't really want to split it up. So I think it makes sense to do the whole thing in one batch, though, obviously, you can listen to it however you would like. Uh, I think the overall discussion is uh, it was really interesting in looking at how do we build a better internet that doesn't have as much power concentrated in the hands of just a few giant internet companies. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over to the actual podcast. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Welcome to everybody. This is the D-Web Meetup, and I am very pleased to introduce you to today's moderator, Mai Ishikawa Sutton. I met Mai at the 2016 D-Web Summit because we did a special uh, session at the end about how to make this community more diverse, more inclusive, and that's where I met Mai. She has been doing that work ever since. She was the global policy analyst for EFF, studying copyright, and most of you know her as the associate producer of DWeb Camp. It's my pleasure to turn this over to our moderator today, Mai Ishikawa Sutton. Thank you so much, Wendy. So why are we here today? We're here today because a lot of us know that the internet is broken. And this movie, The Social Dilemma, just painted this picture for maybe 25 million viewers who may just be waking up to some of these problems these problems of how these big platforms are what the, is what the internet they know and is the internet that they know. And these issues of manipulation, of data harvesting, of selling that data to advertisers for us to become the product that they're selling, that is an issue that a lot of people still don't know about. But we're the D-Web community and we're builders, we're activists, we're designers, and we've been paying attention to all the ways that it's broken for a long time, but we focus on the solutions. And we nerd out about the technological systems, the organizational systems that could make an internet that's actually participatory, resilient, and decentralized. So I'm really thrilled to introduce the stellar set of panelists today. So first off, we have Corey Doctorow. Corey, I knew actually first, not as the best-selling sci-fi author, but as my predecessor 
uh, at the EFF who also focused on international copyright issues. And in addition to being a prolific writer, he's been back with the EFF as a special advisor. And lately he's been focused on issues of internet interoperability, competition, and making the internet more open and innovative again. Next, we have Jay Graber. Jay, I first met about six years ago as an organizer who was fighting for net neutrality. And since then, she's become a formidable developer. She was one of the core team members that launched Zcash. She left Zcash to found her own company, a social media event platform called Happening. And more recently, she's been doing a lot more research about decentralized web protocols, everything from the federated system to peer-to-peer -peer systems to blockchain systems, and the ways in which they have strengths, weaknesses, and what they need to do to actually scale up. Next up, we have Amadine LePape. Amadine is the co-founder of the Matrix Foundation and of Element, formerly known as Riot. And she has been part of the team that has been developing a open, decentralized, real-time communication standard out in the open alongside thousands of open source developers. And it's a fascinating story of how they're combining social innovation and organizational innovation with technology and the ways in which they're fostering a large community of open source developers. Next up, and not, not least, we have journalist Mike Masnick, who is also the founder of TechDirt. He's been following the hottest tech debates for about two decades. And last year, he threw down the gauntlet with his piece, Protocols Not Platforms, in which he made the case for why we need to return to the early principles of the internet of having more interoperability and open protocols. And the piece was so influential that it influenced the Twitter Blue Sky project in which Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is launching into a project to look into how the platform can develop or uh, adopt a decentralized social media protocol. So with that, Mike, welcome all the panelists. I wanna take the first question to Mike. So can you paint us a picture of how we strayed away from that open, innovative, interoperable internet of you know, 20, 30 years ago to today, where we're stuck with these gated walled gardens. <laughs> uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> it's it's a long and somewhat depressing story, I guess. You know, I think uh, honestly, there there are a bunch of different things and a bunch of different factors, and and we can't go through them all. But more or less, what what happened was the early web showed a lot of promise, and we had sort of this dot com bubble where all sorts of interesting new projects came about. But what people quickly discovered was that it was pretty difficult to um, build such things sustainably. Uh, and then along came a few very successful companies that did figure out how to build uh, sustainable web properties. And it was often effectively by putting up barriers and creating silos that, that not only collected a whole bunch of data, but kept that data in and kept it only for themselves. And so you had sort of the rise of these big data silos of Google and Facebook and, and whatnot. And they showed how you could effectively recreate uh, some of the promise of the early web, but rather than doing it with open protocols where anyone can build off of it, you know, they were the controller uh, and they were able to therefore collect, you know, monopoly rents or, or extract uh, excess profits from it 
uh, and that sort of paved a path for for a few other companies to come in and a bunch of other companies to effectively try and do the same and that just became the focus and the idea of you know thinking about the internet as a shared tool for everybody to build on and and to work together uh, that sort of went by the wayside thanks Mike and so the next question is to Corey. How, because of the sort of profit-motivated business model of the internet, how did that translate into maybe regulations that made it that much harder to compete with them? Oh. Uh, am I unmuted now? Yes. Great. So yeah, I don't think the profit, the problem is profits or, or even uh, advertising per se. I think that, you know, the people who started the web and the people who came later, it's not like that one was a group of noble minded people and the other group were, were a bunch of monopolists. The people who funded them, the people who gave them the money in both cases were interested in absolutely nothing but profit, right? That's why, that's why those bankers and insurance companies and pension funds gave them money to build things. I think the difference is what we let them get away with. I think that over 40 years, and particularly accelerating over the last decade or two, we have allowed firms to become much more concentrated through uh, tactics that were historically forbidden. Uh, it's easy to forget that there was a time in living memory uh, prior to Ronald Reagan, which is to say prior to the launch of the Apple II Plus, they, they had the same uh, launch year, they went on the campaign trail at the same time. There was a time when companies weren't allowed to grow by buying their competitors or buying up smaller companies that might grow to be competitors or by creating vertical monopolies where you, know, you run the app store and you sell apps in the app store in the same way that you couldn't run a rail company and also carry freight on your own rails. You had to be one or the other. And that we even had an FTC at one point where any industry where the same company was the lead company for like more than five or six years, the FTC would presumptively open, open an investigation into them for anti-competitive conduct on the grounds that any company that managed to dominate its industry for more than a couple of years at a time was probably up to no good. And when industries become really concentrated, it becomes really hard to write laws that restrict what they do. I mean, it is like unbelievably obvious that we need a federal privacy law with a private right of action. And yet anyone you talk to on the Hill will tell you that that is a political impossibility because of the giant quantities of money spent in concert by the very small number of big tech companies that all agree on what their priorities should be because they're such a small number that they have the same priorities because they've converged on approximately the same business model, which has nothing to do with whether or not you're the product, right? If, if paying for something didn't make you the product, then John Deere farmers would be the world's most autonomous individuals because they buy their tractors for half a million dollars and they still get roped into using John Deere's expensive service. Companies do what they can get away with. They can get away with more when they're concentrated. We started letting them concentrate 40 years ago and that's how we got here. Thanks, Corey. And so next is Jay. Uh, Jay, as a founder of Happening, you came across some of the issues of becoming a startup, right, in the midst of these big platforms, and you had to deal with Facebook's API. Can you talk a little bit about how you just had such a headache dealing with, with Facebook's API? I'll mute myself here. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started Happening because I thought you know, I really want an alternative to Facebook. And I thought Facebook could be unbundled. Like it's such a large service. There's so many things roped up within it. And many people I talked to said, oh yeah, I don't like using Facebook anymore. I just use it for, 
messaging and events. That was like mainly the main use case among, I guess, at least people my age. And so I started building something for events because I thought that's something that you can target. There's not a lot of other messaging of apps out there. And um, I went ahead and just built a centralized app rather than trying to do something more decentralized because I think um, at this level, you're really iterating on user features and user experiences. And the question is, how do you get people to use it? And oftentimes, like the decentralization features are more at the database level, essentially, for users. So I ended up focusing on this app happening. And what happened is I realized it's really hard to get access to a Facebook user's friend list to just to invite their friends to an event, even if they authorize my application to do it through the API. Because the way it's set up is basically... Um, if I want to invite my friends, only my other friends who have authorized the same application will be able to show up in the app. And so I kind of understand why Facebook does this. I mean, uh, on their end, it's reducing their liability for third-party apps, possibly spamming user friend lists. Um, and that it, but it also makes it easier for them to kind of restrict uh, third-party access to their social graph, making it harder for possible competitors to bootstrap off their existing social network. And so the result of this was for whatever reason they did it, it made it really difficult for me to give users the same kind of experience they were used to having on Facebook because as a new site, I just didn't have those network effects. I could pull their email, I could pull their phone numbers, but I couldn't uh, pull their Facebook friends. And therefore I couldn't, you know, just let you invite your whole Facebook friend list. So going back to decentralization, um, I, I went back into doing more research, particularly after like the Twitter Blue Sky announcement because I thought, you know what, like this is one thing we really need because I really wish social networks, user social graphs could just be decentralized and controlled by the user. Because why doesn't it work that way? Like when I make a connection with my friend on Facebook or on whatever platform, I don't intend to be having this relationship mediated forever by Facebook. Like I'm trying to just connect to my friend and I would like to be able to do that ideally across multiple applications, multiple platforms and have the terms of that connection just be determ determined by the two of us because it's really between the two of us, right? But what this would require is a really more robust and widely adopted decentralized model of identity and social relationships. And I think there are some promising steps towards that right now, but we just don't have it. Thanks, Jay. So, Amadine, you started building Matrix six years ago and you started building uh, matrix to address some of these problems of these big platforms and this capture over social networks as Jay described. Can you talk about what those initial problems were and maybe how they have evolved over time to now? Sure. Yes, the, the idea of matrix was very much to break these silos and eventually provide the communication layer to the web. Why do we have this open web on top of which anyone can uh, make money uh, that anyone can use, but we don't have that for communication. Why are we forced to install the apps that other people want us to use? And um, so after having trying to build uh, messaging and voice solutions for 10 years uh, using either existing open protocols or building our own proprietary protocols, we thought that we had learned enough to actually try the impossible, this thing that everyone was dreaming to be to to build. And that's when we, we actually started Matrix. The idea is very much to provide very simple API so that you don't have to be an expert um, a developer in messaging apps to actually build an app on top of it. 
because that's one of the problems we've seen. Everyone thinks messaging is easy, but it's not just sending a message. If you want actual bigger features like group chat, history, encryption, then it starts to be quite hairy. So very simple APIs, completely open uh, so that anyone can actually host it. And then maybe we can get to a world where as a user, I can choose the app I want to use. I can choose the provider I trust with my data and everything is end-to-end -end encrypted. So uh, that's what we try to address. Uh, we've gone quite far uh, along this way. As you said uh, at the beginning, uh, there are now 20 million users uh, on Matrix uh, and thousands of open source developers, uh, different apps building on top of it. It's being used uh, by uh, governments uh, across the world. Uh, but uh, we haven't hit yet the mass market and people who we hope will uh, be a bit awakened by watching things like the social uh, social dilemma and understand that maybe we should try something else. In terms of um, how things have changed since, on one hand you can think not much, on the other actually the awareness uh, of this need for openness, this need for control, this need for data privacy has been uh, growing very uh, a lot. Uh, the main thing you can see is like, hey, you, you're starting to get laws set up to actually protect the users. That's, can you, when we started six years ago, people were looking, looking at us saying, hey, you're completely crazy, guys. Now, the, uh, there are regulations starting to, to come up and people are actually uh, being aware of this need uh, of uh, an open standard, basically for communication. Yeah, and so, um, to shift towards from these, these problems that we're describing to maybe some of these solutions. Uh, as you said, people are becoming a lot more aware of the things that we need, both technologically and regulatorily, <laughs> to uh, break down some of these silos and, these, and, and lower the barrier. So in the US, uh, the Justice Department is seeking an antitrust action towards Google, for instance. Um, a few years ago, European uh, regulators uh, levied a $5 billion fine to Google. Do those sorts of, you know, regulations, those, those sort of penalties on these big platforms actually solve the problem? And I want to let anyone jump in here. So uh, I'll jump in. Uh, I think a fine is a price. Um, firms whose uh, conduct is enabled by uh, their scale, which makes them uh, too big to to actually uh, tame or or consider getting rid of, are are happy to pay fines, provided that those fines are are less than the cost of doing business, right? The, the, so long as that there's there's excess capital left over at the end, and so when we start from the presumption that it's okay that you know Google, a company that only ever made like between one and a half and two and a half products anyone ever liked, right? They made a search engine, a Hotmail clone, and depending on who you ask, the stuff that they bought when they bought Android wasn't any good and they built Android from the ground up. And then everything else they've done, they bought from someone else. If, if they're allowed to go on engaging in anti-competitive conduct, the fact that they paid a fine for doing it won't curb it. And the more fines we assess and then the longer they get to, to go along with doing it, the more power they will amass and the harder it will be to imagine doing anything about it. Like if we, if we need evidence that that's how firms operate, the, the FinCEN leaks that came out last week, $2 trillion 
worth of suspicious activity reports that the largest five banks in America <clears throat> filed with the U.S. Department of Treasury detailing how they laundered money for the world's worst criminals. Treasury had fined them repeatedly for doing this. Uh, they got fined billions. They laundered trillions. They kept hundreds of billions. Why would you ever change your conduct in the face of fines? Uh, you know, asking, asking large firms to not behave like large firms, to not be monopolists, or to even keep track of what all the people in a firm that's so big that you can't know, no one who works there can know what everyone is doing, I think is a fool's errand. Right. And so um, instead of maybe just punishing them with these fines, which you call just prices of, for the price of doing business, there's been more action about talking about regulation that will create actual interoperability, right? Um, in the U.S., there's this Access Act. In the EU, they just closed uh, open comment period for uh, the Digital Services Act to modernize their e-commerce rules. Uh, Mike, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what would it look like to create regulations that build interoperability back into the internet? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are a lot of challenges there. And I think, unfortunately, I'm not uh, particularly happy about any of the approaches that people are taking, because I think the approach is a little bit backwards, right? I think the focus right now is how do we the, the good thing is that people recognize that some level of interoperability uh, is important and some, some level of being able to get your data or control your data is important, which I, I think is uh, a huge deal. But I, I think the regulatory response is how do we sort of force companies to do that rather than how do we, uh, how do we recognize how we got to this position in the first place? Um, and so I don't think that, that the approaches that people are talking about right now are going to be particularly effective. I think that um, you know, getting rid of certain things that have gotten in the way in the past would be a much more effective tool for that. So, uh, you know, things like the CFAA, which, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of history here, but the CFAA was like this officially the sort of anti-hacking tool uh, from the U.S. government that was passed in the 80s, uh, partly in response to the movie War Games. Um, it's that's been stretched and abused in in really dangerous ways that I think prevent this. And, and the most obvious example of that is the Power case, where Power was this company that was trying to build sort of a universal dashboard for all your different social media uh, properties. And one of the things that they did was if you had if you wanted to use Power and you wanted to um, look at you know your Facebook account along with all these other accounts, Power asked you to give you give them your Facebook credentials. Um, and this was your, your permission just to extract your data from Facebook and bring it into power. And Facebook sued power and said that it was a CFAA violation and they won. The case went on for a very long time and, and effectively destroyed power in the process. Um, you know, if we had had a different ruling in that case and it allowed companies at the, the user's own request to go in and, and pull out your data and use it in a different way and create interoperability that way, I think that is a much more important deal than trying to sort of layer on another thing that says, okay, we're going to add a new regulation. We're going to ignore all these regulations that already exist. We're going to just add this new regulation that says you have to be interoperable. And I think on top of that, the way it's being done is often ways that will 
effectively lock in. It, it's creating a new sort of regulatory burden that the big companies have compliance staffs and lawyers and they can all deal with it. And smaller companies will find it more and more difficult. And so we, again, sort of lock ourselves in to these big companies and assume that, that that's the way things are done. And as long as we just regulate those companies, um, you know, everything is okay. But, but what that does is locks out competition and locks out other approaches. Yeah, I want to jump in here and just say, I agree with Mike on this and having tried to single-handedly build and run a little social media startup, I can definitely see how difficult it would be to say comply with certain, you know, requirements I would have to have around APIs. Like, you know, I haven't even built an API for happening and it's just because I'm the only person doing all of it. And I think a lot of these projects are in a similar place where there's like one or two people doing all the work to try to establish a foothold for like a small competitor. And when you have new regulation that, um, might introduce lots of regulations that would be good for larger companies to comply with, you know, like privacy, interoperability, but then it becomes very hard for startups. And I'm, I'm thinking that maybe in some ways, like this kind of onerous regulation um, would be something Facebook would even welcome as a new cost of doing business because it kind of prices their competitors out of the market and it's something they can totally afford and it's really better for them because it just entrenches their moat even more. And in fact, they've said, they've said more or less that they welcome this, this kind of regulation uh, because they know that, uh, you know, and, and, and to some extent, uh, to go back a little bit to, to what Corey said at the beginning, I know we were encouraged before this panel to disagree with each other. So I'm going to disagree with Corey, even though uh, I, I always, you know, appreciate Corey's thoughts and learn so much from Corey and Corey knows this very well. Um, you know, he started out by saying that, you know, we, we need this privacy law with a private right of action. A private right of action scares me to death, frankly. Uh, you know, I understand the thinking behind it and I understand why we want it, but I also see how setting that up could lead to a ton of abusive litigation that completely buries smaller companies and completely makes it impossible. And, and, you know, I don't know if there is a solution in there where you can limit it to certain types of companies, but um, I worry about things where, you know, we, we burden the smaller competitors with, you know, with, with regulations or litigation that, that basically snows them under, whereas the bigger companies can just, you know, chalk it up as an expense. Amadine, um, could you chime in here? Because Europe takes a different approach to the U.S., right? In the U.S., we already have a draft law, this Access Act, and we just have this open comment period. So there's still a lot of flexibility, right, around what the Digital Services Act might look like. Um, could you maybe, you know, give us maybe a hopeful picture, like what, in what ways could this regulation be positive to help, you know, uh, something like Matrix? So um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give up the picture because, yeah, I, sh I share a bit the worries that uh, Mike uh, mentioned here. Uh, but I would like to share more the take that we're, get, we're having on this, which is more that by building an open standard, which is managed by a non-for-profit foundation, which is going to be the one responsible to actually make sure that the standard is align with the various regulations, if and then they come up, then as small startups who actually want to build on top of it, then it's easy. You provide an easy tool for people to build it. And one, uh, when we started Matrix, one of the idea was to reproduce the model we had with email, where initially email standards were very disparate. They ended up with SMTP and just Microsoft being on the side and refusing to actually use SMTP until the day where the users actually voted with their feet. Say, hey guys, I want to send an email outside my company 
how, how do I do that if you're not using SMTP? And they were forced to actually get there. And that's very, very much the approach we're doing. Say, we're building Matrix. It's, we have a flagship app, which is called Element on top of it. We're encouraging as many people as possible to build on top of Matrix. And we're basically uh, um, growing uh, the level of the ocean so that at some point, the big islands of the WhatsApp Etc. We look like dinosaurs because everyone would be like, hey, guys, how come when I use WhatsApp, I cannot communicate with all my friends, which are on the other side? So uh, that's very much the approach we're taking, because I agree with regulations and um, fines, etc. is quite complicated uh, to set up. Uh, it's not uh, black or white. You always have lobbying as well in there. So the main the main way we're going to solve this, I believe, is if the users actually realize what's happening, if as technologists, we actually build solutions which are built on top of an open standard, and then, then we can move the, the world forward. So you're sort of building matrix so that interoperability is the main feature. Yes, the uh, interoperability, decentralization is the main feature of Matrix so that you can really choose who you trust with your data, basically, as a user. And anyone can build on top of it and anyone, all these apps will talk from uh, between one another. Can, can I um, chime in with maybe a middle ground between uh, interoperability and uh, and and mandatory interoperability, which is the competitive compatibility, right? The idea that uh, if you look at the history of technology, uh, all of the, the allegedly like uh, non-overturnable network effects that uh, are supposed to entrench permanent advantage have often been turned on their heads by new market entrants that made compatible products, interoperable products. So whether that was Apple reverse engineering all of Microsoft's office formats and making iWork so that uh, rather than the fact that there's this giant Microsoft installed base being a, a network effect that Apple has to overcome, they all become people whom Apple customers can share documents with seamlessly, or whether it's Microsoft itself, you know, taking advantage of the fact that IBM was under a consent decree didn't uh, uh, want to make the operating system for its PCs and therefore having all of this diversity of hardware vendors that it could sell operating systems to, you know, the network effects um, are often two-edged swords where rather than having a walled garden, the incumbent actually ends up having a kind of corral of, of prey uh, animals that new predators can come and hunt for, new customers that they can come and hunt for. And the thing that they need is the freedom to make interoperable products without facing legal sanction. And one of the things that the concentrated industries have done in the years since they all use competitive compatibility to gain this advantage is to shut it off. So Mike talked about how power sh uh, was shut down by um, Facebook. Facebook had a product a lot like Powers that would log into MySpace for you and get your waiting MySpace messages and put them in your Facebook inbox and let you reply to your MySpace friends from Facebook. You know, the, the sauce of the goose is never sauce for the gander. When they did it, it was the, you know, legitimate progress of a new industry. And when we do it to them, it's piracy. And, and we all know that story. And I think that one of the things we can imagine, rather than just uh, having this, um, that uh, interoperability mandates be the, the ceiling is that they might be the floor, right? This is the least that everyone has to support, you know, this API or whatever. But the ceiling would be whatever it is your competitors can figure out how to do, provided they don't violate some other law, like a privacy law. 
You're basically building a healthy ecosystem where you have different offerings with each their own specific value add. And as a user, I choose the one which matters the most for me and healthy competition for the win, right? Yeah, Dynamo dynamism. Mm -hmm. So with the movies, The Social Dilemma, right? One of the main issues here is this issue of moderation. And so if we have a wider ecosystem of players, especially those that are decentralized, many of them are decoupling that relationship between the client and the server, or in other words, the app and the server, right? What you see and then the data and how it's stored is really becoming separated with many of these decentralized systems. And what are the implications of that legally, right? We have this whole legal regime that acts as if the internet is Facebook, Google, and Instagram. They, it's, it's, it's based upon this idea that you have a you know, huge army of lawyers that can deal with takedowns, that can deal with moderation, things like that. How would a decentralized system deal with this? What are some ideas that um, we need to explore to make sure that this works better? This is an open question. Uh, I can jump in first, I guess. Uh, you know, I think part of, part of it is that we don't we don't know, right? I mean, part of the idea uh, behind saying having a, a decentralized or interoperable system is that it allows for really great experimentation, right? And you have that competition uh, that Amandine was just talking about and, and the dynamism that Corey was just talking about that allows for experiments. Because right now, you know, effectively, we're locked into just a very few experiments. And they're very interesting experiments based on, on these, you know, giant silos of data and the ability to run, you know, different machine learning algorithms off of them or to throw, you know, 10, 20,000 content moderators at them. Um, but, you know, those kinds of models only work for those giant companies. And I, I think what's interesting to me about a, a decentralized or distributed or, you know, protocol-based system is that it would allow for all this experimentation, like Amandine said, where different you know, different companies or different developers can can build on and, and see what works. And, you know, part of the issue is we don't know you know, and, and and I should be clear here, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about this and, and I think that, um, you know, a, a protocol-based system is really important and would help do that experimentation, but I don't think that it alone is the solution. I don't think that if we just went to this, you know, this kind of world that, you know, suddenly the, the questions and the debate and the, um, the concerns about content moderation go away because they don't. Uh, but it allows for this, this experimentation and these different approaches. And we can begin to see things that are different than expecting that, you know, these giant companies that are within a, you know, 40 mile radius of where I'm sitting, hiring, you know, thousands of content moderators and trying to throw AI at it, that that is the only possible solution to the content moderation question. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and add that, that I think a lot of these um, attempts towards solutions like, you know, increased interoperability, uh, t architectural, technical decentralization, um, even antitrust, which is more like political decentralization of the company's decision-making structure and the entities that control these platforms. Uh, all of these really just try to get more alternatives out there and um, more alternatives at the, the whole platform level. Um, some other possibilities could even be just approaching particular aspects of how, you know, moderation or curation is done within the companies and allowing third parties to access um, 
and through you know perhaps new APIs or new ways of um, presenting interfaces to the user. And for example, uh, there's this interesting testimony by Stephen Wolfram before Congress where he suggested, you know, let's say like we don't manage to you know break up these companies or decentralize social media. What if we just had like automated content selection marketplaces? So third parties could run content selection and moderation AIs. And so you might still have like monolithic social networks, but maybe there's marketplaces of AI feeds and then users can choose between these. And you can do this by providing like, you know, uh, you have like final ranking providers and constraint providers who um, uh, put some of the features of all the data out there for third party companies to like, you know, rearrange and present back to the user in different ways. Um, another interesting idea that's emerged kind of from the cryptocurrency space is this idea of like content um, prediction markets. And so that can be used for curation or moderation purposes. So essentially you kind of crowdsource um, and make a content moderation like a micro task where tons of people can participate and say if they expect that a piece of content is going to eventually be uh, deleted by a moderator, they will place a small bet on that content being deleted. And if they're right, they win that bet and get money. So just like random ideas like this, which I think there's a lot of these kinds of ideas out there that attack just certain pieces of the problem. And if you think about how do you open up the data and open up the you know, uh, APIs from where we're at now to move towards that, those are steps towards a helpful direction. I think that giving, uh, uh, having a, a multiplicity of places that you can turn to to act as your proxy in deciding what you see uh, and in what order you see it is really key, right? That, that what we want is self-determination and ultimately self-determination is, is always gonna be hard to get because you're gonna have to find a community that agrees with you about what the norm should be. And if you're not a toolsmith, you're gonna have to convey your requirements to a toolsmith and incentivize them to make it. And so all of those, I'm not gonna pretend that like moving moderation closer to the people who are being moderated will solve all of our problems, but we don't have any hope of solving any of them for so long as we are asking for large firms to come up with um, uh, moderation schemes that satisfy the needs of all their users. I mean, the, the problem with Facebook is not merely that Mark Zuckerberg is like singularly unqualified to be the Lord High Executioner of 2.6 billion people's social lives. It's that no one should have that job, right? Uh, you know, uh, 150 countries, 150 languages, thousands of community norms, lots of different use cases, lots of different threat models. Um, you know, you look at Twitter, which has a policy, for example, that um, you can't use screenshots to report harassment because they're too easy to forge. Well, that's great, except that there's a bunch of really terrible dudes who harass women in comics by sending them really crappy DMs, deleting them, and then sending public timeline messages that reference those deleted DMs, but that you can't or don't actually cross Twitter's threshold unless you have seen the, the deleted DM uh, privately. And so they can do continuous ongoing harassment and stay below thresh the threshold for enforcement at Twitter. But if those people could choose to have their own instance that was federated with Twitter, whether or not Twitter approved of that federation, they could among themselves agree on a norm that they trusted each other enough to uh, treat screenshots as evidence of harassment and bar all of those users' communiques from their own server um, without having to adopt that for all of Twitter's users. Yeah, that's very much the approach we're taking with Matrix as well. So we have 
we have a project which is actually build what we call morally relative reputation, where basically you could subscribe to other people's gray list, people you agree with, people you trust, uh, so that it applies uh, their filtering on the kind of things you want to see, the kind of people you want to talk to, to you as well. We, uh, we've already implemented it in, for, uh, for pure moderation in terms of banning servers and this kind of things. I think the important thing to add to that uh, is uh, while it's good for people because it's protecting them, there is also this risk of creating uh, even more the bubbles and what we need to get right and is going to be super hard is actually sh show people where they stand in the rest of the world so basically you have a world this is where you stand in terms of i want to hear what uh, whoever trump has to say then i listen to it but hey look what happens if I take my pin and put it on the other side of the world and hear what the others have to say? Or you are aligned with 0.005% of the population. The rest of the world completely disagree with you. And I think what we're, missing, we're going to need is really make sure that people hear the other side of the story. Otherwise, we're back into these big bubbles. And you know, how to solve that is going to be fun. Right. And, and so we're talking a lot about having, when we have a more decentralized, interoperable system, we'll be able to have more experimentation, of course. That also means making the moderation systems closer to the end user and not this big centralized system that has all of this power to decide what is acceptable content, what is not, which is just based upon, you know, all these thousands of people locked in rooms that are moderating these spaces and also many of these top down decisions that are based upon laws and you know in some countries they have very you know antiquated laws around free free expression and things like that so you know what kinds of maybe organizations do we need um, that to make this possible i want to shift us to you know what brings you hope in the next 10 years what kinds of organizations what kinds of movement do we need to move us towards this path of having better systems where we actually have spaces where we communicate, where we're learning things, we're connecting to people genuinely, and we're not getting harassed and abused and, and all those things. What, I wanna ask each of you to comment on what brings you hope in the next 10 years. Um, I wanna go, who wants to go first? Jay, I'm gonna call on you. Hear me? Yes. Okay, I'll go first. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that's giving me hope is some observations I've made recently of people moving away from large public conversations on Twitter and Facebook, moving into more private things through private slacks, discords, um, mailing lists, substacks. Like this isn't the ideal situation, but I think this is kind of a natural decentralization that's happening as people migrate to shared communities um, with like their interests and things like this. And like seeing more, seeing this fragmentation happening makes me wonder if it is possible to you know, reconsolidate around an open protocol this time that ties together a lot of these disparate messaging chat platforms. Like maybe, you know, Matrix already is doing that for chat, maybe like expanding it to many other use cases that include more of social media is a possibility in the near horizon. Uh, something else is emerging work around decentralized identity standards. There's DIDs and other forms of um, decentralized identity uh, protocols that have been worked on by the W3C recently. And I think seeing something like that emerge that could get widely adopted, I'm seeing a lot of 
adoption happening in the cryptocurrency space right now, but like also by more peer-to-peer social media apps and things like that, that could enable this kind of vision of a more decentralized ecosystem in which many different applications can interact with the same user's data and uh, user's data and relationships can be more uh, controlled by the user themselves. Just to be clear, uh, Matrix can work perfectly well for social media. It's just a, ma- a matter of building the app on top of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which does it. <laughs> right. I mean, isn't social media just one big chat room, sort of? <laughs> or, or Twitter, that is. Um, who wants to go next? Mike, call on you. All right, sure. Now I've been called on. Uh, so I, I think I think there are a lot of things that give me hope. I mean, the fact that we're here uh, and that there are however many people watching this uh, and having this discussion, and I've, you know, been talking about this for a few years, and obviously, you know, wrote that big paper last year, and that got a lot of attention. And every time I write about it or talk about it, I have more and more people reaching out to me and wanting to talk more about it. Um, that gives me hope, right? I mean, this wasn't something that I I, I tossed out there, and I certainly didn't come up with it whole cloth. Everybody else, lots of other people, including people here, uh, you know, in, in the, the group on stage and, and watching uh, all had these ideas and everybody sort of built on it. And, and, you know, we're continuing to sort of refine and move towards something better. Um, and so I'm excited about that. It's not like this idea was out there and everyone's like, nah, not going to work. Right. There are some people who say that, but there are so many people who are, are, trying things and working on things. I think we're still a long way off. I know that every time I talk about this, uh, at least three people will reach out to me after this and say, I've built the solution. Uh, and that's generally not <laughs> the way this works. Uh, you know, there hasn't been one single solution, uh, certainly in just in looking at, at adoption, uh, which is, is sort of the next big key piece is figuring out how do we actually get people to do these things. But I think all of the things that, that Jay brought up are exactly right, that, you know, people are looking for something. Um, and we see that and people are finding it in different places. Uh, and so I think the next 10 years are going to be a lot of interesting experimentation. Um, and hopefully that moves us towards something better. And I hope on the side of that, that, you know, the, the uh, regulatory side of things does help and doesn't make things worse, though I, that I'll, I'll put in a little bit of fear. I do fear that we're going to go the wrong way with some of the, some of the regulatory approaches. Before I go to Amadine next, I, um, we're going to go into audience Q&A in just a few minutes. So if you have any questions, uh, put it in the chat right there. So Amadine, what is your vision of hope? So the fact that awareness is basically growing is my big hope. And yeah, even every time a regulation is going out there, there is communication around it more and more people are actually talking about it, writing about it. And this is great. And I hope this is going to continue growing. And the fact that we, we do have tools to experiment with and uh, we're, hey, we're super excited to eventually manage to start building this reputation system, see where it can go and work with the rest of the open source um, ecosystem, uh, be it Matrix or others to solve um, this whole uh, fake news, misinformation and, um, and actually get somewhere. So we have people, we have the tech and awareness is growing so we can get somewhere. It's just a matter of doing it. Kari. Yeah, 
I think the thing that gives me hope, and I've talked about this at other Internet Archive events, is that people who are upset that the web has turned into like five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of the other four, are starting to figure out that they're, they're not alone, right? We live in a world with five publishers, uh, four movie studios, three record companies, two beer companies, and one eyewear company, like uh, dominating their industries, right? One movie theater, one e-commerce site, and so on. And that all of these, they have a common cause, right? It's not, it's not that tech is run by super geniuses or super villains. It's, it's, you know, because if it was, then we wouldn't see the consolidation in professional wrestling, which is definitely not run by super geniuses. And, and so I think that if we want to understand what's going on, we have to look to these big structural factors that are changing. And part of what we're here to talk about today is misinformation. And I think that the uh, explanatory power of conspiracy theories is really under theorized that like when you live in a world where every industry is concentrated into so few hands that they effectively get to write their own regulations. And when those regulations create enormous actual harms and trauma, I mean, think about people who are trying to live through the lockdown with 20th century broadband. And we had Frontier go bankrupt in the middle of the lockdown. One of the things we learned in their bankruptcy filings is that they had 3 million households they could have profitably connected to 100 gigabit broadband, that they were the only company that served, that they would have made $800 million on a $1 billion investment, so $1.8 billion in total over 10 years. And they chose not to do it, to lose money over 10 years because the analysts who dominate the share prices of their industry don't give good ratings to any CapEx with more than five years recoup. And the executives in the company were paid in stock. And so their personal compensation would go down. Three million families are now trying to survive the pandemic locked indoors with DSL made out of copper that was installed in the 70s because of Frontier's bad incentives and lack of competition we have common cause, right? And that's how we make a difference. You know, Jamie Boyle says that before the word ecology was coined, there were a thousand issues, owls, ozone layer, the, you know, uh, uh, freshwater, saltwater and whatever. And it was a thousand atomized issues, but the term ecology welded a thousand issues together into a single movement with a thousand ways to get involved. And we are not going to solve tech with tech. Tech will be part of the solution. We're going to solve tech with a change in the way that we govern firms. And we're gonna get that change by making common cause with their brothers and sisters who are angry that their kids are going to university where two textbook monopolists have raised prices 10,000%. And they're, we're gonna make common cause with people who are angry that their local emergency room has been bought by a private equity fund that's bought every other emergency care facility for 20 miles and has raised prices thousands of percent. We're going to make common cause with people who are angry because there's only two companies making all the beer and one company controlling all the wrestling, right? And that's how we're going to make a difference. Oh, thank you so much, Corey. That was excellent. So I want to move to audience questions. Um, Wendy, have you seen some? Would you like to read some out loud? Sure. Here's a question from James for the panelists. What have you learned about getting these benefits to resonate with real users on the street? What's the level of utility we need to get to before we can be a credible alternative to the mainstream apps rather than just an uncomfortable trade-off for the privacy conscience? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in. I think that's a really, really important question. And I think that one of the... Um, 
one of the problems is that we we do, and this is natural, and it's the way sort of every um, evolution of technology seems to work, is that the first thing that we do is recreate what was already there uh, and often do it in a, in a clunky way, right? This is sort of the classic innovator's dilemma to some extent. Um, and so that's it's very difficult to get people to use it to, to use things based on that. If we're just recreating Twitter or just recreating Facebook and doing it in a distributed way, they're, they're really, honestly, whether we like it or not, there aren't enough people who care um, to make that big enough to matter. Uh, so, you know, the next stage of it is, has to be enabling the kinds of powerful things that were not able to be done before, that the kinds of things that Facebook would not do by itself, that Google would not do by itself, that Twitter would not do by itself. Um, I don't know exactly what those are because there's a lot of different areas that you could go down and I don't know which one is going to resonate the most, but I think, you know, the, if we really want to get people to use these things, we have to come up with what is unique and different that a distributed decentralized platform enables in a creative way that almost, you know, goes up against the things that the big companies already do, that they cannot move down that path and they, they cannot copy that effectively. It would sort of undermine their, their way of being. Um, and that creates some new value, some new benefit that goes way beyond just recreating what is already there. Because if you're just recreating YouTube, you know, YouTube is going to beat you at that. But if you can do something that, that allows for something more powerful built on something like a YouTube, people will follow you there. So strangely enough, we've thought quite a lot about this. And yeah, I agree that basically what the rest, uh, like the close company are actually providing is the baseline. You have to have a user experience, which is as good as Slack, WhatsApp and company. You have to uh, get to, uh, to this level uh, of, um, of usability. What you're going to bring there is the fact that you're a, you're a network, so uh, it means that people, you're not forcing people you're talking to to actually use the same app as you do. And then if you have an, an ecosystem which is vibrant enough, then you have multiple apps doing multiple things in very specific ways. And all these apps with its, will each bring their own, um, their own users into this network. And that's the kind of one of the differentiator. But you need to get to a level of network which is as big as what the others have with a level of usability which is as big as what the others Here's another question to the panelists. Should we be building alternative or complementary infrastructure? Oh, not both. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I wanted to weigh in on the last one, but this, this works well. Uh, I, I think that... Um, if you actually look at the history of, of where a lot of new technologies came from, they came by plugging something new into something that existed that fixed something that the old company didn't want to make. That, that, you know, if the old company gives away razor blades and uh, gives away handles and charges for razor blades, the new company comes along and, uh, and, and uh, gives away razor blades, right? And fights them, beats them at their own game. You, you have, for example, Lexmark sued static controls in the early 2000s for refilling uh, and re-engineering their toner cartridges. They used to charge more for, you know, loose carbon powder than it would have cost if it had been in diamond form. And, uh, and, and Lexmark just reverse engineered it, survived the lawsuit, Currently, they, or, or rather, uh, uh, Static Controls, this Taiwanese company, reverse engineered it, survived the lawsuit. Currently, they own Lexmark, 
right? It, it, like, I think that, um, you know, figuring out how to make Facebook better is the first step to getting people to not use Facebook, right? To, to being a thing where that, that eats Facebook's lunch that goes where Facebook dare not go, right? An ad blocker for Facebook that scraped everything that you might want to read from Facebook and then presented it to you in a non-tracking environment so Facebook couldn't gather behavioral data would be a really powerful way to use Facebook. And lots of people would do it because the part they like about Facebook is the part where they see their friends and stuff they're interested in. And the part they don't like is where they're spied on all the time. And you could just give them the one without the other. And what stands in the way are, are, is the thicket of laws that prevent interoperability. I wanted to jump in too. One thing I was thinking is um, trying to formalize what I think are the most, uh, the highest utility things that decentralization can offer users. I think it's offline first functionality. I think it's uh, privacy and data ownership, uh, although those are more abstract in many cases. And then there's censorship resistance. And that doesn't just mean government censorship, but you know, platform censorship. And I think those are the main things um, that new platforms can offer. But also by thinking about ways in which platforms that have a different business model because say they're not building the same kind of moat, um, how, what could they offer? So for example, um, being more open to interoperability because it is a decentralized protocol rather than trying to like close off users. Interoperability itself can be a huge uh, bonus for users if they can reach their friends across all different platforms, as long as you're able to do that, of course. Um, and then another thing I've been thinking is that there are maybe instead of looking and recreating services of the past, I feel like a lot of decentralized protocols keep going in and trying to, you know, recreate, you know, Twitter or like microblogging or stuff that was really like the peak of social networking five to 10 years ago, as opposed to looking at emerging new interfaces. Like what about, you know, forms of video uh, social networking, like TikTok and, you know, things that are much more interactive or what about the, that, you know, I think, you know, stuff like GatherTown's really cool, that just of like spatial video conferencing. And what about stuff going on in um, VR, AR? Can you get in ahead of these new technologies and try to set something in place that um, expresses more of a vision of the web you want as it evolves forward? So instead of, say, the snow crash world in which everything in AR or VR is owned by one company, how do you have like a decentralized uh, space, like, you know, Decentraland tried to do or something? Um, another space is like IoT things. I've seen Amazon starting this thing called Sidewalk, which is their like uh, a bunch of like IoT devices in a neighborhood that they'll connect using Bluetooth and give you more connectivity this way. And this is really a dream of a lot of like mesh networking advocates, I think. And now that Amazon is doing it in a highly centralized way, it kind of like takes some of that excitement out of it. But, uh, you know, I'm worried that they'll get there first for some of the offline first functionality that, you know, local first decentralized apps or networks can offer. Here's another question for Jay, actually. You've done an overview of decentralized social media apps. What are the open questions that they have yet to answer that are preventing them from reaching scale? <laughs> uh, well, okay, so I think one of the biggest ones is business models. How do you get this positive feedback loop uh, of a business model that lets you invest more into the business and grow it and grow the platform? Like a lot of these things are uh, donation run or they're um, funded through another company or like some other source of money that's not related to, you know, the app itself making money. And so how do you create a decentralized a business model in a decentralized app or a decentralized environment? I think that's one of the really big open questions to, to tackle. And so even just experimentation 
basically with the, the same things and just different business models could be really useful. Like say, you know, Mastodon, but throw in this different business model, see if that works. Like, I think that would be really useful in trying to figure out what could work long-term for this space. Um, another big thing I think is uh, identity, like I was saying earlier, like for the social graph for all sorts of like interoperability purposes, it's like the unifying thread for the user online. And really like maybe one of the original sins of the web was um, you know, not really figuring out early on, not to say that they could have, but how do you figure out, you know, a way to create identity as like a core um, protocol level thing that, you know, browsers would support as opposed to being something that got implemented mostly on top in social networking apps that now own our online identity. Um, and then another one is definitely moderation because I don't think uh, decentralized apps just magically solve decentralized, uh, solve moderation. Like they give you more options for playing with different strategies, but whenever these decentralized apps have started to reach the scale at which moderation really becomes a problem, like I think, you know, in the Mastodon and Matrix community, it's reached that level. Although a lot of the smaller ones still have mostly, you know, uh, well-intentioned hobbyist users and not like serious malicious actors. But once you reach that scale, what are the tools you need to moderate effectively? And I think that is still an area of ongoing experimentation and research. A question from Eva. How does a move towards wider adoption of decentralized web intersect with the increasing national isolationism of technology around the world? For example, see the U.S.'s move to block Huawei and ByteDance. Muted. Sorry, I'm, I'm used to using my hardware mute button. I recommend them to everyone. Uh, so the, uh, the, there's a story that goes that we need national champions to save us from China, right? That we need these big firms that will, that will joust with, uh, you know, Weibo and whatnot. And, and I think that this ignores history. You know, Tim Wu had a very good uh, essay about this when he talked about the history of the AT&T breakup. Whereas AT&T was being broken up, uh, Japan's electronics industry was making serious inroads into the global electronics marketplace that had heretofore been dominated by the U.S. And it was a source of gigantic anxiety that America was going to lose the tech race to Japan. And they said, how can we break up AT&T? If we break them up, then we won't have a champion to fight for us and defend us from Japan. And what actually happened when we broke up AT&T is the company was no longer allowed to stop us from plugging modems into the phone line, right? That turned out to be pretty good for American technology and competition. So, you know, to the extent that there are these, these, um, that there are these people who are playing this game where they're like, what we need is this giant clanking, slow-moving tank that is itself like hamstrung by its own organizational inertia and also is wound into so many of our like policy domains that anything they do to change just you know has all these stakeholders in the government that that shout makes the that they come and shout at them and so on those people are going to get you know completely overrun by smaller nimbler firms that are not beholden to the interests of shareholders of the winners of the last tech lottery but instead are trying to make the very best tech that is possible yeah, if you if you rely on open source, open standards, then you can actually have complete control of where and how and who is building it. And um, as you say, the small people can actually get control as well. And uh, they, these um, these small companies and the open source projects actually don't are not beholden to the big um, to the big investors. Yeah, I think the the other thing is if you look at 
you know, the mechanism by which um, the Commerce Department was trying to block WeChat and TikTok, uh, you know, that only works when you're dealing with big centralized players. Uh, if you have sort of smaller distributed decentralized players, uh, it becomes much more difficult to, to have nation states come in and say, you can no longer use those, those apps here. Uh, you know, there are certain limitations and certain things that can happen, but you know, the more centralized it is, the easier it is to block as well. Yeah, I think something like TikTok, the concern is that, you know, it's so centralized that it's also, you know, perhaps got backdoors to the Chinese centralized government who is able to like peek into the centralized app. And, and really, ultimately, I think uh, what we're seeing is kind of a test of models, technological models being played out at the national level. So China's gone just like full centralization, everything's centralized, we'll just nominate a winner in this category. And now, you know, Alibaba rules this, right? And that way, it's easier for the centralized government to manage and everything. And the US has many very large centralized companies too. But what I guess a lot of people in the US who care about democracy and competition and, you know, resilience of like a diversity of approaches are trying to do is to get you know, more alternatives out there. How can we do things with more voices, more democratically, more smaller competitors, as opposed to just having one winner in each category and then just having them face off. And so the real success in the long run, I think, is if in the US we can, or the West in general, we can foster like a more of a ecosystem of less smaller, you know, more um, competitive products and projects and companies that can um, kind of do an end run around these models that China is going. And I guess what I fear is going down the path where we just end up in the same situation thinking the only way to, you know, successfully moderate speech in the US and to successfully compete economically with China is to have the exact same business models that they do have like one big monolithic social network or whatever company that the US government has a lot of influence over. That I think is the worst outcome in which basically we all go down that path uh, globally as opposed to having more alternatives. Our final question is from a techie, Paul Lindner, who asks, is anyone else out there worried that we have too much tech solutionism for social problems? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, um, there are a few different ways to answer this question, but I think it is an important question and it is worth thinking about, right? Um, there, you know, it is difficult to separate out um, which of these problems are societal, cultural problems and which of them are the technology sort of emphasizing those societal and cultural problems. And this is a debate that could go on forever and potentially is not all that interesting. But I, I think it is important to, to, to think through and to recognize that. Um, and I don't think, I know that a, a lot of the conversation here, just because of the framing, was very much about the technology solutionism to some extent, like, you know, can we build these, these alternatives? Um, but I don't think any, you know, uh, you know I know all of my, my co-panelists, I don't think any of us are thinking that way. I think we all recognize that there are societal and cultural issues underlying all of this. Um, the fact is, well, I'll speak for myself, not for everybody else. I don't know how to solve the cultural and societal problems. Uh, I, I can have an Im impact on the technology. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to push on that element while recognizing that, yes, there obviously are much larger societal and cultural issues that, that are really at play here. Uh, and if anyone has a good solution to those as well, I'm, I'm all ears and would be happy to, to listen. 
Yeah, I think we need um, uh, social uh, people who know about society to work together with the technologists because everything which happens online um, has to be solved by some level of technical um, solutions, right? But we definitely need some input from the social side. And on the plus side, what we see online is a reflect of what we can see in, uh, in reality. So you can experiment online and actually then try to force um, and expand out in, a, in a, the reality as well and learn from it. Yeah, just to jump in, I think we are grappling um, as a society and as a culture right now with um, changes caused by new technologies. And there are different, you know, social approaches to the ways that we deal with this and, you know, rearrange, reorganize things um, just outside of the new structures themselves that have introduced a lot of these changes. But then also thinking about how those structures are built and how we can change them to also have downstream impacts on what kind of social structures are possible and what kind of rearrangements are possible. That's a, that I think is a really interesting place to be. Um, and it's also, I think there's um, probably, this like a, probably easier to get started with some of these little experimental solutions because you don't have to get mass social consensus to push legislative solutions forward if you just say start a new open source project that aims to create a new kind of you know interoperability or identity standard or something these things can be played with and you know uh, attempted to work at a smaller scale so there's more like a single person can do to create this kind of change in my opinion I, I want to propose a, a highly selective brand of tech exceptionalism that we should all consider following. Uh, it, it's that on the one hand, tech is definitely exceptional, right? So it has these two characteristics that make it very exceptional. The first one is that um, tech is uh, uh, universal, right? It has the, this universal Turing completeness. It has this universal non-discriminatory network capability, which means that tech has an interoperability capability that is not present in other technologies. You know, Edison used to sell phonograms that had special spindle holes and warnings saying that if you tried to put it on someone else's record player, that he'd come after you. But, you know, he, he had that like hardware incompatibility that was kind of hard to overcome. Whereas with software, it's just software, right? All of it's, you know, when you're, iPhone refuses to run an app that Apple hasn't uh, checked the I approve box on. It's not because it can't run it. It's because it won't, right? We have that universality. And so that is exceptional. It's distinct from other industries and other domains. And the other way in which tech is exceptional is that um, it touches so much of everything else, right? If, if we're going to organize a better world uh, about uh, where we address the climate crisis or where we address uh, inequality or any of the other problems that we have, we're going to fight and win or lose those battles on a technological battleground, right? That it's, it's not sufficient to change our social problems, but without it, the battle is lost. It is necessary. But there's one way in which technology is not exceptional, which is that it's not a substitute for governance, right? That, that, you know, the, the, the caricature of the old cypherpunk dream that we find a key length that is so long that we can use it to build a kind of cryptographically secured demimond that we can shelter under while oppressive and uh, unresponsive and illegitimate states form outside of our impenetrable bubble. It's always been a, an absurd idea because rubber hose cryptanalysis is not a thing that you prevent with longer keys. If you want 
the police to not tie you to a chair and hit you with a rubber hose until you tell them what your passphrase is. We need the rule of law. And what technology can do and what cryptography and privacy tools can do is give us a temporary respite where we can hope that we don't make a single mistake that allows our adversaries to gain entry while our adversaries look for just one mistake that they use to invalidate our efforts. And from that temporary shelter, we can organize to build permanent structural changes that give us the responsive, legitimate democracies that are really ultimately our only hedge against bad activity. I was reading this book recently called What the Internet Could Have Been, and I think it's also important to not forget that in the grand scale of technological change, the internet is so new. And I mean, literally its inventors are still coming to D-Web conferences like Vint Surf, you know? And, you know, we're able to rub shoulders with the people, you know, the giants and who's, <laughs> we rub elbows with the giants on whose shoulders we now stand, someone said, right? So it's like, um, we're so close to the very origins of this technology that it's far too early for us to say, oh, well, I guess everything is centralized and now just a few companies rule this whole space because it's been like that for 10 years. I mean, 10 years is nothing. Like we have so much more opportunity to change this right now. So that's why I think that in particular at this point in time in history, it's really important to focus on some of the tech solutions here because the tech has not fully solidified yet and we still have time to change it before it touches literally everything in the world and all our houses and cars and every device is part of the internet, which no longer exists as the internet because it's just everything, right? That's a great segue, Jay, for my closing question, um, which is, you know, you just said that there is time to change this. We can do this. It's still very new. What can people do to do to help with that? We have a whole audience of activists and developers and, and researchers who are looking into these questions. For each of you, I want to ask maybe one or two pieces of, you know, a ta a action that they could take to help bring this new internet forward. And Jay, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Okay, so... I would say just try alternatives. I mean, try Mastodon, try Matrix, try them out and then give feedback because a lot of these big companies do everything through A-B testing extensively, every single feature. They have teams of 200 people dedicated to adding features and detecting problems. A lot of these small alternative projects are run by like one to 10 people who are doing all the coding, you know, and they don't have time to um, figure everything out. And so if you try them out and then you give feedback on what you liked, what you didn't like, what you would like to see, what you think your friends and family would um, use it, like what features if they added, your friends and family would use it. That is a huge contribution to these projects, I think. Um, like file bug reports, um, file feature requests, do things like that. Uh, and then something else I would say is just support regulation, but be really, support good regulation, but be really careful about thinking, thinking through the effects on like smaller startups and smaller competitors. So I think that there's like, an instinctive desire to support any kind of regulation that comes down the line. Cause it's like, Oh yes, privacy, interoperability. We want those things, but it's like, how are those achieved? And is that something that is just a regulatory cost that Facebook can absorb, but smaller ones can't. Um, Mike, can I, I'll pass it to you and then, yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, Jay stole my, my entire answer. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think, I think she's exactly right. Right. So um, trying, trying out the different things, but then certainly paying attention to the regulatory battles and the legal battles. Um, there are a bunch of different important legal fights that are going on right now. Obviously, uh, you know, Corey's with EFF and EFF is a good, really great source to, to uh, pay attention to for, for where and how all those different 
legal battles are playing out. Um, there are other uh, civil society groups also that are worth following and paying attention. Um, you know, it's nice to think, you know, one of the things that I think um, the developer community in particular often likes to try and ignore, um, you know, legal and regulatory battles and sort of saying, you know, oh, we'll just kind of code around it or whatever. Um, I think that's, that's dangerous. And I think part of the reason that we're in this, this mess that we're in today is in part because of, you know, previous uh, regulatory and legal regimes. Um, and so I think we need to be very, very careful about, um, you know, what what sorts of things come down the road. So paying attention, close, careful attention, and not just assuming like, oh, okay, if it's bad for Facebook, if it's going to regulate Facebook or Google, that must be good. Um, because in some cases it might be, but in a lot of cases, it's going to be the type of thing that Facebook can handle it. And then we lock in Facebook forever. Um, and that's that's the thing that worries me the most. So I think paying attention to those, speaking up. Um, you know, I know it's very easy to be cynical and to say that, you know, Congress doesn't listen to, to people. That's not really true, uh, you know, on certain issues, maybe. But in a lot of cases, and especially on issues like this, if you speak up and if you call your, you know, congressman or, or senator or, or whatever other representative, um, it, you know, they, they will actually pay attention in a lot of cases. Uh, and so it is really worth doing and speaking up and making a difference that way. Amadin? 200% behind both Mike and Jay. Uh, I would add if you're a developer, please contribute to the project <laughs> as well. <laughs> but what I, I think what is, uh, what is missing is where a lot of people are vocal, but we're a bit in our bubble of people who know about this and are were discussing about it. But again, here it's mostly activists, technologists working in that area. Let's try to speak out. Let's try to touch as many people as possible outside this circle. We had this debate just before when we were preparing for this thing, um, the, this meetup, when we were talking about the social dilemma and saying, okay, did you like it, guys? And then we, we were a bit split on between, on one hand, it's... Yeah, it's a lot of things we know, and maybe they pushed it too far by trying to impersonate the algorithm, etc. But on the other hand, there are so many people who don't know what an algorithm is. Maybe that's how far we need to go. Maybe how, how can we um, uh, how can we simplify this? How can we make it easy for people to understand of uh, how? how they're stuck in these in these big bubbles and uh, completely um, puppeted by this algorithm. How can we do this? Because yes, there is a good group of people who understand who are trying to act, who are pushing for regulations, etc. What about 90% of the rest of the world? We need to touch these people. So let's try to find ways and be vocal towards that these people as well. And last but not least, Corey. Sure. I mean, I, obviously, I think you should get involved with the FF, too. And I think that talking to politicians, especially in an election year, is important. And this is a year where, where these issues are on a lot of uh, politicians' minds. Um, I, I, I would add that as technologists, you can help by bringing a healthy do dollop of skepticism to the discourse about how effective machine learning is at manipulation, right? The, the best source we have for how good big tech is at getting us to do stuff is their own sales pitch to people they're hoping to sell ads to, 
right? That's the origin of the story that big tech has a mind control ray. And, you know, the idea that like Google and Facebook built a mind control ray to sell your kid fidget spinners and then Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a racist is certainly very comforting if you want to go on loving your uncle. But maybe it's like the social conditions that created the, uh, the paranoia, conspiracism, and so on that, that, that has led to that. And maybe we shouldn't believe big tech. I mean, after all, you know, when they tell us they pay their taxes, they're lying. When they tell us they punish sexual predators who work in their executive ranks, they're lying. When they told us they weren't building drone stuff, they were lying. When they told us they weren't building a search engine for China, they were lying. When they told us that they weren't mining their own suppliers' data to make knockoff products, they were lying. Do we think that the only time they're telling the truth is when they file patent applications and boast to, them, to their customers about how good their products are and why they should spend top dollar on ads? I think that we need to be really skeptical of their claims and of the claims that have emerged from people who I think are well-intentioned critics of tech, not, le not merely because we should know what's true, but also because if we really do think they have a mind control ray, then the temptation is to demand that they use it for good, right? To, to not make them so small that they can no longer wield it. Uh, not least because, you know, the mind control ray advocates say that if you break up Google and Facebook, you end up with a thousand pips, pipsqueaks with mind control rays, as opposed to a couple of big, easy to regulate companies. We can either fix the internet or we can fix the tech companies. And, you know, I think that everyone who ever claimed to have built mind control turned out to be a liar. You know, whether it was Rasputin or, or the CIA with MK Ultra or pickup artists, they're all kidding themselves or us or both. Right. I, I, I don't give these guys credit for for being, you know, super geniuses from another dimension. Recognize that they are ordinary me mediocrities, no better or worse than you and me. And assume that what they're getting away with, they're getting away with because no one's checking the same bad impulses that we all have. And not because of some exceptional character of technology that demands that we drape them in golden chains and appoint them kind of the, the uh, constitutional monarch of our technological future, where they consent to take some actions out of noblesse oblige that benefit us all while continuing to govern our entire electronic nervous system for the centuries to come. Wow. Okay, with that, we have to end our meetup. Thank you so, so much to all of our amazing panelists. That was such a great discussion. Um, I'm leaving just so pumped and inspired, and I hope you all do too. This has been recorded, so if you want to show this to your friends or your networks, please share that. We'll be posting that on the Internet Archive website. Um, and now we'll be going to GatherTown uh, for those of us who want to continue the, the discussion. And if you want, if you want to you know, talk about a specific thing, you can put it in the global chat and say, hey, I want to talk about this part of that discussion, or you know, I want to talk about this. You can put it in the global chat and say, hey, I'm going to be on the beach, or I'm going to be in the bar downstairs uh, in GatherTown. So feel free to hang out there after this. Wendy, do you have any last thoughts? Just that um, in October, to build on Corey's point, we're going to have Tim Wong with a very new book questioning the whole fallacy of the advertising model and whether it really delivers. It's called the subprime attention crisis. So I'll send you all um, an invite to our next event. But have fun. You know, last month, people hung out in Gathertown till 3.30 p.m. So go have lunch, come back. Uh, it's really fun. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's given us a lot of hope and um, things to think about.
So we'll see you in Gather. Okay.